We now come on a part of the sermon that is the application of the Beatitudes. And at the entrance of the sermon itself, there is an introduction. Now, maybe you don't like introductions to messages, but this is Jesus' introduction of a couple verses of how everything that he does relates to the law or how he is related to the law itself. Now, I preface my remarks by saying we need to understand how vital of an issue this is, especially to a Jew. To a Jew, the law is everything. In fact, the law was the way that they approached themselves to God. The law was God to them, and at least that's everything that God had given them, and they treasured the law. And when Jesus came along, he was unorthodox, to say the least, to the average Jew. Really a strange duck. He had never been to the rabbinical schools. He was not trained to be a rabbi. Immediately they're suspect. He is the son of a carpenter. Worked in a carpenter shop the first 30 years of his life. What could he know about the law? Very little, according to them. He violated in their minds the Sabbath constantly. Uh, he would uh, heal on the Sabbath. Uh, and basically, he confronted the Pharisaical leaders of the day with some pretty hard language. And where does he stand according to this Old Testament? Was he here to abolish it? Was he here to do away with it? Was he here as a young radical Jew to, to totally dismantle the Jewish religion? What was Jesus' relation to law? And it's important for us to know who are in the age of grace, to understand the relation of law to grace. It has gotten, it, it is mistaught many times. And I hope tonight to give you some accurate teaching of how grace relates to law and where we are in relation to law itself. Now when I speak about law, I speak about three different kinds of things. Because the, to the Jew, there were three levels of law or phases of law. First, there was the ceremonial law. That's the sacrificial lamb, that's the, all the ordinances as far as the ceremonies they went through, the Sabbath observance. Second of all was the judicial law. Israel was, until Saul came along, a theocracy. God led the government. And there was judicial law. I personally like some of the ways they did judicial law back then. Uh, some businesses today could learn from the judicial law of the Jews. If you offended someone and took one of their cows, you had, and were caught and found guilty, you had to give them a cow back and a second cow. Do you understand? That's judicial law. If a business does you wrong, they should give you all your money back for your meal and should give you a coupon for a second free meal. One is to equal up, and the other one is for your feelings. And feelings are important. Businesses would do well to do that, but anyway, that's judicial law, and the Israel had a lot of laws like that. But also there was the moral law. The moral law. The Ten Commandments. The thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. These were moral laws. So you see the three. So when it talked about law, they were concerned about all of them. There are Christians today and preachers today who believe that we're still under the law. 
needing to do the Ten Commandments. There is a teaching that is prevalent that I was under for a lot of years that said this. Basically, because now the Holy Spirit lives within you, He strengthens you to now be able to fulfill the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments. Interesting. We'll see where that sits. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus makes it very clear. Do not think, and, 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 and the word is emphatic, perish the thought that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. Notice the next says, I have not come to, I paraphrase the exact, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is an incredible statement on a couple of different levels. Uh, it was about A.D. 300 that a fellow named Meshion came along and said this. He was a preacher, so-called, and he said, you know, by the way, in the early church, in the first couple hundred years, there, there, there developed an anti-Semitic feel to the church. And the reason was because for the first couple hundred years, the Jews persecuted greatly the Christian churches. So there developed this anti-Jewish motif within the church. You even see it in the writings of the great Augustine. You see it in the development of eschatology, the study of end times, when during that time the church believed that the church was now the nation of Israel separate, that Israel was gone. That came out of an anti-Semitic philosophy that the church developed. You got that? So there was this guy, Messian, who said, you know, the God of the Old Testament was pretty brutal. I mean, he wiped out children, right? That's what the scriptures say. He went into towns and Wiped out the children and, and, and the mothers and the women. And, and brutal, Sodom and Gomorrah, he rained fire down. Therefore, Messian taught that the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. Two different gods. Therefore, he established a Bible that totally eliminated the Old Testament. Wiped it out. He eliminated all the Gospels except parts of Luke that weren't talking about the Jews. Then he took Acts, and he took all of Paul's letters. He's a big fan of Paul. His movement in that caused the church to go, wait a minute, what's the canon of Scripture? What is it, what's, what? And it helped the church develop, but that's another story. But the point is this, that there has been within the church all through the ages movements to think this, that the Old Testament is irrelevant to the New Testament. That because we're under the age of grace, the Old Testament is not needed anymore. Or is not relevant anymore. There have been definite movements of churches that will only preach out of the New Testament, won't touch the Old Testament. But here Jesus says, look, I have not come to abolish any of the Old Testament or the prophets. If you'll watch the ministry of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, he quotes numerous times in the Old Testament, constantly. It has been written. It has been written. It has been written. The Bible of the brand new church of the apostolic times, the first century, didn't have the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament. And they preached the gospel just as effectively as we can out of the New Testament today. In the Old Testament, there is scripture that foretold the Messiah's coming. We'll get to that. 
Psalm 22, don't turn there, but is a, a laid out description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He fulfilled dozens and dozens of Old Testament prophecies that were specific to him. Where he would be born, he would be born of a virgin. Descriptions of his miracles that he did. Descriptions of his movement toward the Gentile nations. In an Old Testament devoted to the Jews, there's a movement toward the Gentiles. A description of his ministry up in Galilee. Look at the rest of that verse, verse 17. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. Implied all of them. All the law, all the prophets culminate in the person of Jesus Christ. So you have credible language all through the Old Testament about Jesus Christ. You have symbols all over the place. You have Abraham's wife who gave birth out of a dead womb long past the time that she could have a baby. Her womb was dead and yet life came from a dead womb. Sounds like life springing from a dead tomb. You have, you have Abraham offering Isaac on Mount Moriah, raising the knife to his head, fixing to slit his throat. You have a father who gives his son on a mountain of crucifixion. You have Old Testament constantly, all the way through fulfillment, all the ceremonial laws, uh, those who love the Old Testament, and hopefully it's all of you, will read, read things back in Leviticus about the offerings and the slitting of the lamb's throat and the draining out and how a lamb comes to slaughter. You know how a lamb comes to slaughter? Completely oblivious. Walking up and raising the neck and just let you cut him. And the Bible says that Jesus as a lamb went to the slaughter. So he lifted not up his voice. That's amazing. Jesus says, I'm the, I'm the central fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. Isn't that incredible? Um, in our day, John Piper wrote a book years ago called Christocentric Preaching. His point was this, wherever you are in the Bible, Old Testament or New, run to Jesus Christ because it's all talking about him. Christocentric preaching. One, one more point. How do we interpret the Old Testament? We interpret the Old Testament out of the lens of the New. The New Testament is our rule of thought. But as we look into the Old Testament, we look at it through the glasses, if you will, of the New Testament. Interpreting the Old from the New, not the New from the Old. Okay? When Karen and I were dating, uh, I had a picture of her and she had a picture of me. That was important for both of us because we spent months apart. I was over in the Mediterranean on a ship. And every night I would stare at her picture. Uh, it was a cute picture. She had a little red shirt on and she was, well, she had more. <laughs> she was in a cornfield. <laughs> she was in a cornfield in her father's corn patch. And she just looked cute. And I would stare at that picture. I don't know if she, she had a picture of me on the ship up on a certain deck looking out, you know. 
I don't know if she stared, I doubt she stared at my picture every night, but I stared at hers. And then I came back from overseas, and we got married. I still appreciate that picture, but it's not the focus. She is. The Old Testament is the picture of Christ. I still come across that picture once in a while, but it's her reality. Okay, look at verse 18. For truly, I say unto you, now whenever Jesus said truly or verily, he meant pay attention. This is, this is a word of authority for me. Until heaven and earth pass away. Heaven and earth have an idea of permanency. Until they're gone. Not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, now, when is all accomplished? It wasn't at the cross, even though Jesus said it is finished, it's accomplished for us. It's not yet accomplished. The law is still in effect to this world and to the Jew. Now, I'm going to suggest in a minute it's not to us, but to them it still is in effect. An iota and a jot, Io is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. A dot is the smallest symbol above that smallest letter. It is absolutely all there. Notice verse 18. Nothing will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, therefore, whosoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, they will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. You got that? What the commandments and the law calls sin is still called sin under New Testament grace. That has not changed. Our relation to the law has changed dramatically, and we'll see how in just a minute. But the law has not changed. L let me say quickly that there are two extremes for the, for the believer. There's the extreme that they place themselves under law, that they have to obey all those things to be pleasing in the sight of God. You know, we do not teach that here. That puts quite a weight and burden on the Christian that the book of Galatians said don't ever do that. But the other extreme is called antinomatism. And basically it's the teaching of this. Since I'm under grace, it doesn't matter how I live. Since I'm under grace, I can live any way I want. In fact, the extreme is the more I sin, the more grace God can give me. That it doesn't matter that I blow my top and am abusive to people. It doesn't matter that I lust. It doesn't matter that I steal. I can do anything I want because God will forgive and it's grace. That is so far from the teaching of grace, you can't believe it. Paul had to deal with that in chapter 6 of the Romans, 6 of Romans, when he said, Shall we continue in sin that grace may go crazy and abound? His answer was, Perish the thought. Don't even let that thought come into your mind. That's ridiculous. New Testament teaches that the grace of God has appeared teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. Where? In this present world. I'm going to, well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 19. Therefore, 
whoever teaches that sin is not sin anymore, then that the commandments don't matter. By the way, there are those who embrace the Gospels, saying that the letters of Paul are Paul's interpretation of Christianity. And that all we need is the Gospels and get back to the stories of Jesus and just follow what he said to do. Paul just kind of muddled the thing. And then there are those who say, well, Paul got it all right, and the letters he interpreted, and that things that happened in the gospel happened to Jesus under the law as he was fulfilling the law, and they don't apply to New Testament Christianity. Run from both of those extremes. Paul correctly interpreted the processes of sanctification and growth and how it all mechanically works. But in all that mechanically working sanctification that Paul laid down, there is nothing in the Gospels that Jesus taught that is not applied to the New Testament Christian under grace. It's important to properly understand how it all fits together and works together, but be careful of the teaching. I was talking to Caleb this afternoon. In a, in a, finely, in a finely orchestrated organism, the least little skew off in the wrong direction messes the whole thing up. It is a finely tuned thing that must be viewed correctly, this Christian life. But Jesus said none of the commandments, none of the law, the, the violation of those is still sin and to be taken seriously by the Christian. How the Christian views it is very important. Look at verse 19. But whosoever does them, teaches them, shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20. For I tell you, this is one of the keys to understanding all that. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, far exceeds, by the way, this is jaw-dropping time for the, uh, the disciples. Because nobody in the land of Israel was holier than the Pharisees and the scribes. Nobody. I mean, if anybody made it in, they were making it in. Notice verse 20. Except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even get in. To which, to which they all went, Huh? Because it is impossible to exceed what these scribes and Pharisees were doing in righteousness. Well, where does that leave us? It leaves us in an impossible situation. The purp- Listen carefully. If you haven't got this yet, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was to send us to the person of Jesus Christ, knowing that we cannot fulfill anything of it. So how is the Christian in relation to the law? Listen carefully. Jesus, when he came, fulfilled all the law in all the Old Testament. He fulfilled the prophets. He fulfilled it all in a perfect life. Having offered that perfect life to the Father, He died on the cross, buried, rose again. We have been placed in him. Therefore, the fulfillment of the law has been placed in Christ, and we are in Christ. 
Scripture talks about us being free from law. The reason that we're free from law is because Christ lives within us, we have no need of an exterior commandment. Because his life is in us, we fulfill what the New Testament calls the righteousness of the law. In fact, open your Bibles to, to Romans chapter 8. Let's look at Romans chapter 8. I want to show you that because that phrase is over and over again. Romans chapter 8. That it is not the law anymore that we fulfill. It is something much higher. It is the, the righteousness of the law. Help me by scanning your eyes down through chapter 8 and finding that phrase. Thank you, Larry. Verse 4, thank you. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice it is not the law that we are to fulfill, but the righteousness or righteous requirements of it. This is not talking about what we do. This is talking about who we are in Christ and who Christ is in us. Jesus elevated the teachings of the law into a spiritual realm that are impossible for us to fulfill. He said, the law said, thou shalt not covet. But I say that if, if you lust in your heart, you've already committed the deal raised it to a level that was far above the written law. Only Jesus Christ can fulfill that requirement in us. He makes us, first of all, positionally righteous, positionally perfect. And then out of that positional perfection, he begins to live his life and when he's living his life, all of a sudden, he's manifesting himself. And he begins to fulfill the righteousness of the law. For those legalists who accuse we who preach grace of being soft and easy on sin... We are so much further higher above those standards that they enact within their fellowships. Because we teach that it is not enough not to commit adultery. Jesus said, not to lust within your heart. Well, how do you can't do that without him doing it through you? Jesus, in this sermon, will finally get to the point where he says, be ye perfect. And he didn't mean perfect as far as positionally, because we're already perfect. Be ye perfect. Well, how perfect do I have to be? You have to be as perfect as your Father who is in heaven. And he meant every bit of that. 